Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. In episode three of this three-episode series, we focus on a discussion of Mycobacterium abscessus lung disease, led by Shannon Casper-Bauer, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Mycobacterial and Respiratory Infections at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. She is joined for a case discussion by her colleagues, Charles L. Daly, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Mycobacterial and Respiratory Infections, also at National Jewish Health Center in Denver, Colorado, and Pamela J. McShane, Professor of Medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Tyler. To follow along with the accompanying slide set, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear first from Dr. Casper Bauer on the challenges associated with treating mycobacterial abscessus lung disease. So, mycobacterium abscessus is a rapid grower. It's the most common rapid grower that we see causing lung disease in our patients. We call it a rapid grower because it typically grows within a week, but recognize that's in subculture. So again, know your lab. Um, our lab uses both a liquid and a solid medium system to help facilitate growth. And once we see this growing on the solid system, you'll recognize that there are two different phenotypes that you may see in the lab. One is a smooth morphotype, and what you see here on the right is a rough morphotype. The smooth morphotypes tend to be very rich in that glycopeptidolipid cell wall, so these are organisms that oftentimes are environmental organisms. But in our patients who have chronic infection, they're more likely to have a rough morphotype, which has also been associated with greater virulence. So these organisms tend to have very robust cording, and that cording effect is actually a mechanism to evade the immune system, to evade phagocytosis of the macrophage. If I can impart one pearl during this talk, it's this slide. So outcomes are dramatically different depending on whether or not you're treating a macrolide-sensitive or a macrolide-resistant strain. Treatment is going to be different. So you need, again, to know what you're treating. And so often we get these outside consults that say, how do I treat abscessus? And the first question we're asking is, well, how does it behave in the presence of a macrolide? There are two mechanisms for macrolide resistance to understand, the first of which is a lot of mycobacterium abscessus, particularly subspecies abscessus, has a functional ERM41 gene that confers inducible resistance. So if your lab is only reporting a three-day susceptibility, you have no idea if that strain has an active ERM41 gene. If they're telling you an extended incubation, so 14 days incubation, then you can say whether or not you have inducible macrolide resistance. The second mechanism of resistance comes from those patients who have seen a lot of macrolide in their life. They have what's called constitutive resistance, and that comes from a point mutation in the 23S ribosomal RNA. So let's break this down. If you have mycobacterium mycelians, those isolates have a dysfunctional ERM gene, so they are macrolide susceptible. That's rule number one. Are you going to use a macrolide in this case? Absolutely. If you have the second row here, that's a functional ERM gene. That could be related to Mycobacterium abscessus or Mycobacterium boletii. And again, if you use a macrolide in this case, you can use it, but you're not counting it as one of the active drugs. You may use it for its immune modulatory properties. And then again, in the third category, it's only working as an anti-inflammatory if you use azithromycin. 
recognize that there are some mycobacterium obsessus, subspecies obsessus, that have a non-functional ERM gene because they have a T to C substitution at position 28. We call those C28 sequivars, and they behave just like mycobacterium mycelians. They are macrolide susceptible at three days and 14 days. So antimicrobial susceptibility testing is key for treatment of mycobacterium obsessus. Recognize that the cut point for resistance is different in obsessus than MAC, so greater than or equal to eight is defined as resistant. And you want to know from your lab that they are pursuing inducible macrolide resistance testing, meaning they're using extended incubation or molecular testing to look for that ERM gene and whether or not they are C28 or T28. There are specific predictors for disease progression in patients with mycobacterium obsessus, and that includes those that are underweight, and you heard that from Dr. Daly's talk as it relates to MAC as well, those that have bilateral lung disease, or those patients with cavitary lung disease. We also recognize that clinical manifestations are different when looking at resistant infection versus sensitive infection. And this was from a cohort from China, and they looked at patients with resistant disease, they were more likely to present with cavitary disease, less likely to present with predominant tree and bud features, and more likely to present with homoptosis. One of the four strong recommendations from the 2020 iteration of the guidelines relates to mycobacterium obsessus, and that is, if you have a macrolide susceptible strain, please use a macrolide. Unfortunately, most of what we're seeing in our clinics are the macrolide resistance strains. If you're using a macrolide, you can use it for its immune modulatory properties, but you're not counting it as part of the active regimen. An initial treatment is recommended to be at least three active drugs guided by in vitro susceptibility, and this is where expert consultation might be helpful if you're not comfortable treating this disease, because we really don't know the perfect duration of time to treat these patients. I'm not going to go through this in extensive detail because this is there available to you on your slide set, but you can see that we approach those with macrolide susceptibility different than macrolide resistance. Generally, patients will receive an intensive phase of treatment, which includes parenteral agents, typically two IV agents if you're dealing with macrolide resistant disease. The options here include amikacin. Of the beta-lactams, we use imipenem or cefoxetin and then tigacycline as our tetracycline analog, although there are newer tetracyclines that I'll discuss later. Then after you complete the eight to 12 weeks of IV treatment, you'll step down to a continuation phase of treatment, which again, you like to choose between two and three active drugs, and that's difficult to find, frankly, in macrolide-resistant mycobacterium obsessus but you'll see listed here clofazamine, linazolid, and inhaled amikacin. What about outcomes? So you have one of these patients in your clinic, you're talking to them about starting this intensive regimen where they're gonna have to, if they're Medicare, they're driving in twice a day for infusions for months. Now you need to discuss with them what's the likelihood of cure. And unfortunately, in mycobacterium obsessus with macroid resistance, Sustained culture conversion without relapse is about 23% from this meta-analysis. The difference here, look at the difference between mycobacterium mycelians. Cure rates are 84%. So that's consistent with what we see in macrolide-susceptible MAC. 
And recurrence rates are different between these two organisms as well. Recurrence rates tend to be higher for Mycobacterium obsessus than those individuals affected with Mycobacterium mycelians. So how about predictors of favorable outcomes? Well, again, being of a normal weight, so having a BMI of 18.5, having a macrolide susceptible strain, not surprising. There was a study here, the second study listed by Hutton, noted that those with a smooth morphotype actually fared better than those infected with a rough morphotype. The third study here from Park et al. looked at a standardized CT scoring system. And regardless of the species, whether or not it was obsessus or miscellaneous, having more severe radiographic disease was fared poorly for those patients, had a worse prognosis. But having a lower cavitary score was only a predictor for favorable outcome in obsessus. And the point there is that miscellaneous, regardless of the size of the cavity, those patients did well. And then finally, these specific agents in the meta-analysis looked at the use of azithromycin, imipenem, or amikacin. Those patients predicted had uh, better outcomes. Let's talk a little bit about mortality. So again, mortality difference is seen between mycobacterium obsessus and mycobacterium mycelians. It's almost double in obsessus what we see in mycelians, but very high 5, 10, and 15-year rates of mortality. And patient factors that were independently associated with mortality, including being older age, male sex, being underweight, and having concomitant underlying diseases, as listed here. And I would be remiss not to emphasize weight. If those of you treating NTM lung disease are not comfortable using appetite stimulants, find someone in your practice who is, because these patients, even without treatment, are cachectic, they have poor appetites, they're precipitously losing weight, and then you add all of these drugs that make them feel terrible, and they don't want to eat when they're on these regimens. So we use a lot of appetite stimulants in our program, including mirtazapine, marinol, magase, because weight, being underweight, has been associated with as a predictor for disease progression, a negative predictor for sustained culture conversion, and a predictor for mortality. So let's hear from our patient again about motivations for adherence. I was on a probiotic. I thought I found the right one. So that kind of helped me, that helped mitigate the possible side effects, gastro side effects. So that was one thing. And what really motivated me was the fact that I didn't want it to get worse. My case was found at relatively early stages. As a matter of fact, when I first went to the center, I was told by my doctor that I had the very best case she had seen up to that point. And that's because I was diagnosed early and most patients were not. But now more doctors are, are aware and people are being diagnosed early and most people can live with it before it gets to a point where it's, it's very debilitating. So to touch on emerging therapies in mycobacterium obsessus. And the first drug listed here is clofazamine. Um, if you are treating more NTM lung disease, feel free to come up and talk to me after the lecture. We use a lot of clofazamine in our practice, but it requires an IND with Novartis. There's retrospective studies that have shown that the additive culture conversion is about 24% in those that have been on treatment. Generally, it's well tolerated in our experience, about 14% discontinuation rate, and it tends to have activity against most NTM. The mechanism of beta-lactamase inhibition in abscesses is mitigated through the BLAMAB, 
mechanism, and there are, as you know, novel um, beta-lactamase inhibitors such as avibactam or relabactam that affect this. Unfortunately, there's just very little clinical experience using these agents. There are dual beta-lactam reports. So the importance here with dual beta-lactams is target redundancy. So using things like imipenem and septarolin together. Vidaclin is another active agent against mycobacterium abscessus. And then rifibutin. Rifibutin is interesting. Most of us don't think of rifibutin in mycobacterium abscessus. Rifibutin has been shown to actually decrease transcription of ERM41, thereby potentially rendering the strain macrolide susceptible. The axazolidinones, such as tadizolid, and recently um, on clinicaltrials.gov, there's a study with dilapazid that's underway, not currently enrolling yet, looking at that agent in mycobacterium abscessus. And finally, ALICE, or amikacin liposome inhalation suspension. There have been retrospective reports, approximately 50% conversion when adding it to patients that were treatment experienced. The one point here that I'll say from the open label study of ALICE was that in those patients that uh, did not culture convert, there were six patients, so about 20% were found to later develop amikacin resistance. And the thought there was that those patients were really just on clofazamine and ericase together. So it does not appear that clofazamine protects against the development of amikacin resistance. Finally, the FORMAT trial is underway. This is finally an optimal regimen for mycobacterium abscessus treatment. This is a randomized, open-label study, phase 2-3 trial. This was spearheaded by our colleagues at, um, in Queensland. But there's now 34 enrolling sites across Australia, New Zealand, Europe, and Canada. So if you practice in those particular locations, I would encourage you to look if, and see if there's any sites in your area. This is an adaptive platform. So there's currently 12 potential arms, and they have an observational cohort as a comparator. The take-home points here is that Mycobacterium abscessus is a rapidly growing mycobacteria. Most isolates are macrolide resistance, and treatment is long and hard. Initial treatment requires at least three active drugs. If you're using the macrolide, it can be used in as immune modulator. Be careful about those risk factors for progression, such as low BMI, and focus on weight restoration. There are many emerging treatments for mycobacterium abscessus, which is very exciting in this field. And now we're going to talk about a case, a couple of cases, actually. Um, I'm showing you two cases because one of the points I'd like to emphasize here is how heterogeneous this disease is. So I have two patients that were very similar age, both 64-year-old women, both presented with smear-negative disease, and both were culture-positive for abscessus, diagnosed around a similar age. And I'm showing you the coronal views of these two patients. Interestingly, as you see, the patient on the left has a very classic upper lobe bronchiectasis. She was found to be a heterozygote for Delta F508. Now, she was also noted her isolate had that C28 saquivar. What does that mean? It means that she's macrolide susceptible and she had a smooth morphotype in the lab. And I've been following her now for about 10 years. She's had no progression over the time that she's been in my clinic. She's never needed treatment for her mycobacterium abscessus, although every time I look for it, it's there. The patient on the right, however, same age, same organism, although different. She had a T28 sequivar. She's macrolide resistant. She has a rough morphotype. 
and over the years she's developed severe worsening of her cavitation. So let's focus in on that second patient. Her primary complaint when her disease is exacerbating is hemoptysis, large volume hemoptysis. She's actually very healthy otherwise. Her only other comorbidity is hypothyroidism. She's never been a smoker, she's never had surgery, and she's only on a multivitamin and thyroid replacement. So I'm gonna turn it over to my colleagues. What would you choose? It's a Tuesday that I would use IV amikacin, imipenem, and tigacycline. I mean, all week, all, you know, all day. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like I've seen a lot more abscesses lately, and I go with that regimen almost every time. And the reason is I load up with omatocyte, I mean, with ondansetron, and we take that an hour before. It does, it's, it's not always easy, but that's what we do. And, um, yeah, it's, what it's, dose? I start out at 25 with hopes to get to 50, but we don't always get to 50. 50 once a day. At nighttime. Uh-huh. So at it, night. th this, is, this is the problem in the field. Well, is that dose effective? Because in the hollow fiber model, they recommended 200 milligrams a day of tigacycline. And this is my point for not just tigacycline, but for everything we use, we don't know the optimum dose. What we do in this field and have forever is we lower the dose till we get to tolerance, but we don't know if it's still working anymore for any of the drugs. That's why the drugs that are in development now, at least we will have a better idea is that dose, well, with that dose, what happens? But we don't know that now for the stuff we're using. Well, let me tell you what happened with this patient. So she started ivmacasin, imipenem, tigacycline, and oral clofazamine. Unfortunately, like a lot of our patients, she had severe nausea and vomiting due to tigacycline. And she developed tinnitus and hearing loss due to IV amikacin, even though we were dosing this, which is our usual strategy to dose this Monday, Wednesday, Friday on the amikacin. Her hemoptysis and coughing, however, improved significantly on treatment, and her cultures are still positive. So now back to the two of you. After two months of parenteral treatment, what might you continue as an oral regimen for her? In a perfect world, I would do something like inhaled amicacin, matocycline, and clofazamine. Okay. That's how I would end in, oh, matocycline is hard to get. Yeah, I think we all look at the same short list, and that's the one that we often come up with, yep. that, that combination. Other things, though, would be, uh, bedaquiline would be another potential option. Linazolid or tadizolid, you know, those are also options. Yeah. Again, sometimes hard to get, expensive, but uh, in these patients, you, you have to build a regimen because it's strong enough to protect the aminoglycoside. Mm -hmm. That is your point earlier. Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, we all know every, first of all, I should have said this at the beginning, everything we do in mycobacterium obsessus is off-label. There are no FDA-approved drugs for mycobacterium obsessus. So as new agents come out with what looks like in vitro activity, because there's such a field of scarcity, we are reaching for these options if they're oral and well-tolerated. But certainly we need better data. And so she was transitioned to clofazamine and linazolid, um, she did not tolerate inhaled amikacin because of her tinnitus. But when she exacerbated again, we put her on this combination of dual beta-lactams, and she had also abibactam uh, beta-lactamase inhibitor as part of that. And so I'm showing you two images between 2018 and 2019, and this was presented at CHEST a few years ago. She had significant clinical improvement 
and radiographic improvement as well. Now, whether or not that was related to the BLAMAB inhibitor or just the redundancy of the dual beta-lactams, I don't think we'll know from that particular individual. The other thing she's had in the last five years is she's had surgery. So she ha this was not this individual patient, but she underwent a right upper lobectomy where she had enlarging of a dominant cavity. But I would just stress that both in MAC and mycobacterium abscessus, when you have a patient with this degree of a poor prognosis, and if you have a patient with focal disease, this is one of the things that you can add that is really a favorable predictor of a good outcome in these patients. So I think of surgery earlier in my mycobacterium abscessus patients with focal disease than I would in someone with MAC because I know what's coming down the road. I'd like to thank Dr. Casper Bauer, Dr. Daly, and Dr. McShane for that excellent discussion, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the slide set for this podcast and the full program on clinical case studies in non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease, expert insights on best practices on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.